Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, we know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point, because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Happy Wednesday. We have a very exciting episode today that we are covering a topic that is so pertinent, is so important, and is something we've been wanting to really dive into for a long time. So I'm very excited about that. How about you? A thousand percent excited. This is a topic that we've covered, unfortunately, a ton in top stories because God forbid we go a day without a mass shooting in this country. But the topic that we are covering very specifically is an assault weapons ban. What does that mean? What does that actually do? You know, what have past bans done? Have they worked? Where also do in this conversation, which we'll tell you who it's with in a second. And that also that change point that we always seem to not understand as to like when guns and gun violence became so prevalent like we're almost numb to it in this country at this yeah, point especially like mass killings something that yeah. you you said in the interview too how like your parents are like when did this start happening like this was not an issue growing up for me and like my parents have said the same exact thing and something I said too to my parents when they said this I was like I feel like you guys had a lot of like serial killers and in your generation, like, you know, like every like famous serial killer, I feel like it's like our parents' generation. And so now true. we have this like new form of violence that is honestly a lot in part to the type of weaponry that people are have access to. And that is like literally what this entire episode is about, is that like assault weapons conversation and why this particular type of weaponry is such a huge problem and how it should not be accessible to the public in the ways that it is. So very important conversation, obviously. I think hopefully it'll give people some answers as to where to turn to when these tragedies happen and kind of what the solutions are looking to our government and what we can do about it. But speaking of top stories, might as well shout out what we chat about yesterday, because if you haven't listened, you should. There's so much to run through. We have a little election watch update, a new Senate campaign announced. We talk about, obviously, the mass shooting that happened in Kentucky, and we also go into the abortion pill that is under threat right now, and that dropped last week. Then... 
we talk about what there's oh, there was title some nine. Stories. Title nine. We have to talk about corrupt Clarence, which is the only way yep. that I will be, you know, name dropping Clarence Thomas from here on out. It's just corrupt Clarence. And you know how I feel about alliteration. I love an alliteration moment. Mm-hmm. So honestly, we're missing like, one. Probably. Let me see. Mm-hmm. What's going to bother me? Was it? Okay. There's the OCD. There it is. There it is. <sighs> okay. Election watch updates. Louisville mass shooting, abortion pill, Tennessee three update. Of course, oh. like we forget the biggest story. It's we give all the updates there of, you know, where these legislators, their next moves are. They're going to be reappointed again. We had one get reappointed. So the updates there and then the title nine and then corrupt Clarence Thomas and all of his bougie ass vacations that his rich Republican donor friends take him on. So we get oh, into so all of that have to say. So I was looking at like the ProPublica article, obviously, which is in relation to the Clarence Thomas of it all. And it's funny. And I feel like vacations at this house in the Adirondacks, and it's really like it's an estate that just aesthetically, they show this picture of like the, what the hell is that called? Not the boat gate, the the boathouse, like the, you know, the boat flip. Jesus Christ. I was like, what is it called? They show the picture of the, like the boat slip and it is so freaking ugly and i'm like you have like well this is really directed towards the billionaire how much money and this is what you hired an architect or a designer to do <laughs> like that is one of those things that forever bugs me i know i'm just getting so sidetracked here but like when when rich like, people have just a hideous taste terrible taste like there is no amount of money that can buy taste like and i yeah, understand that true. like i am Max. not a rustic style person it's not my vibe it's the Adirondacks. They're clearly trying to do rustic. And I'm not going to be like, oh, my God, sign me up for that no matter what. But, like, at least do it well. <laughs> I yeah. just... Harlan Crow is the man we're talking about who we also go on a full rant about how obsessed we are with his name. <laughs> not obsessed with him as a person. No. But the coolest name we've ever heard. So go listen to Top yes. Stories if you haven't yet. Again, a lot of big stories from last week into this week. So should all still be very timely and pertinent for you to know about. So tune in. I also had a little personal anecdote moment that I wanted to tell you about because, you know, said conservative uncles that I talk about a lot on the show were in town this last weekend. Oh God, Love them dearly. But my dad told me that, that he was talking to them and he was like, he brought up the whole Dominion court case and how like, Fox News, basically all the receipts came out. Tucker Carlson hates Trump. Like they knew about, you know, the, how the big lie was a thing. It wasn't actually election fraud, January 6th. Like they knew all of that was full of shit and they still ended up airing it. My uncle had no idea. He was like, what are you talking about? Like they, and we talked about this when it dropped that like when Fox News was in all that hot water and all the receipts were coming out that like they were getting exposed for not believing anything that they put on air and that they're all just like doing it for the views and to keep this base engaged. Like that week when that was all dropping, what they were airing was the downplayed footage that Kevin McCarthy released of the insurrection that it was like not that big of a deal. It was peaceful. Like, see, like this was all like a hoax. Like January 6th wasn't an insurrection. It was like a peaceful protest, whatever. That's what they were airing all week when all that crazy news was happening about the Dominion legal case and everything. And like my uncle literally had no idea. That is like straight up just like propaganda. I know. And it's like, so that sad. Is wild. And that's just like so scary too, because you literally know like they are just not being fed 
facts, like any information. Yeah. And which, that's like, like where we're at is that people are just have completely on, yeah, different, different facts, different set of knowledge. And like, I'm sure there's a world in which like, if you're fed a certain type of information, it is going to obviously skew your views a certain way and make you think a certain way. But the fact that that information is just completely false and you're living in this false reality that's making your views on literally in the entire world like be so far off from reality totally. it's just like that's where we're at well because also it's like one of those things where maybe at like a certain age you're like thinking like okay like let me look at news sources objectively and see like okay what's doing a good job what's not and fox news whether it has deserved this or not which in my opinion not has been looked at for a long time as like a respected news source. Conservative, yes, but has always been looked at, at least in, I feel like our lifespan is like, and minus obviously maybe like the last six years is like, yep, conservative people watch Fox News, but it's a legit news source and legit news outlet. And that's just not the case so clearly. Yeah, or that at least when there's like an insurrection on our government that like we'll cover that. And they did on the day until they regrouped and they were like, wait, we can't feed into this narrative. We need to turn this around. And that's what they sure did. They sure did. Wild. I also, you just sparked a memory that I meant to text you and then I didn't because I have (laughs) amnesia. I have inability to speak. That's what I have. So you know how also we were talking about with the Trump scenario, the Trump versus DeSantis situation of will Trump being indicted help Trump? Like, does that make Trump supporters more in his camp? Does that bring people to DeSantis? Like, what does it do? And I will say, since that happened, I have noticed a heavy, heavy amount of Trump stickers, Trump signs, Trump flags, especially Trump even hats. I have seen a lot more visible Trump 2024 stuff out and about, which I think is interesting because now it's like the people that or Trumpies that might just like not have been showing it are showing it like they feel like I, I think it's the interesting that commentary of indicting him makes those people feel even more like on his side like yes he's being wrong like let's protect our guy and I don't know what else to say about it besides that just the observation of I really have seen an increase in that everywhere yeah i saw something too that he he has made a fuck ton of money too on all of the shit he's selling for this campaign i mean yeah i mean also it's like obviously he's just he's freshly into kicking off this new campaign for president so obviously there's gonna be a resurgence of these people like yeah you know showing support and it's campaign season technically already for 2024 so it's only gonna get more and more crazy but yeah no it's like He's been in it like a little bit. And so the fact that now after that happens, it's like a double yeah. down. And DeSantis so, like still isn't supposed to announce until like end of May. So that's going to be and I think that's going to be the real test of like once he actually announces like where people are at, because if Trump's the only one like that's announced so far, really, in the, at least in those two, which is kind of the battle everyone's looking at. I feel like we won't actually have a, a real temperature gauge until he announces so we'll see yeah agreed wild wild west that's that's the world we're in folks but nonetheless we should definitely get into this epi and this interview again a really important one truly and for today's conversation 
We spoke with Congressman Garamendi from California. He is the author of the California State Assault Weapons Ban back in the day. California's had this for, I can't do math, what, three decades? Yeah, a little more. Yeah, we're going to, the math is that. So we'd love to see it. But anyways, we, like we said, we chatted with him about that particular ban, what a national ban would do, and just this topic at large. So without further ado, here's Congressman Garamendi. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Congressman, welcome to Girl League of the Podcast. We are so excited to chat with you. And as we get into it, as we get into the topic today, which is gun violence, it is a heavy one. We want to do some backtracking. We want to lay the groundwork here, get to know you a little bit, and get to know the district that you're from in California. So if you wouldn't mind starting us off with just giving us the lay of the land, what's your district like? What's your space in California? And of course, federally. Thank you so very much. I'm very de delighted to join you, particularly on this subject. This is an extremely important subject for America. I don't know. We have 130-some mass shootings already, not even a third of the way through the year. The history on this goes back a long, long way. When I was statewide as insurance commissioner, lieutenant governor, this issue was a statewide issue. But even before that, back in the 1980s, I was a state senator representing Stockton, California. And that was the first mass shooting at a school ground by an automatic weapon. That was an AK-47, the, the Russian version of what is now the AR-15. So I don't, there was half a dozen killed and that many more injured. And coming out of that, I was determined as a state senator to in, try to get rid of those weapons and just a bill to banish assault weapons in California. We worked at that for about a year and ran into the NRA and others. The good news was I was working very closely with David Roberti, who was then president pro tem of the Senate. He took over the bill and he said, we're going to get this done, John. I said, well, let's do it together. And ultimately, we did, by 1990, a total ban on assault weapons in California. It was written in such a way as to take into account the, the AK-47, but also future weapons that might be produced. And of course, the AR-15 and other models along that line are now 
ubiquitous in the United States. This issue then went to Congress. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein took it up, and uh, President Biden was chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and they passed a 10-year ban on assault weapons across the nation. The good news was they did it. The bad news was it was 10 years. And when that 10-year period expired in the mid-90s, the Republicans controlled Congress and the presidency. And so there you have it. That died. And now we have these guns everywhere, everywhere, open carrying on the streets. Politically, this issue has been in the forefront of California. But in the representation that I've had in Congress, with the redistricting that occurred following the 2020 election, I wound up with really an exciting district, one that I represented both statewide, but more importantly, in 2009 to 2012, and that was Contra Costa and Solano County. It is a very, very interesting district. All five of Northern California oil refineries are there. In many ways, it's a blue-collar district. It's also a district with great wealth and great poverty, inner-city communities, communities that have been left behind, communities that have been seriously affected by the oil refineries, the contamination and the like, as well divided by Interstate 80 and other freeways. It includes Vallejo and Fairfield in Solano County, really, really different than the district I had in the previous 10 years, which was the Sacramento Valley. I had 199.9 miles of the Sacramento River from the Carquinas all the way up to just short of Oroville. So it was a district of agricultural district, rice and you name it. It was grown there, wine, rice, wheat, and a whole lot of ducks. It was duck country from beginning to end. And it was a fun district, a district that the highest mountains of the Sierras to some of the highest mountains on the coastal range and a lot of very, very good people. I'll continue to represent them. But my big loss was the University of California, Davis, which was just a joy to represent. All of the research that's going on there, we were able to really push that research into projects that are critically important for California, climate change, water, drought, all of that. So here we are in a new district that spans Interstate 80, and we're going to create what I call the Ag Research and Manufacturing Corridor, because we're seeing this, this biotechnology just take off in the Bay Area as well as around the Davis and the two university campuses, medical campuses in Sacramento and San Francisco. They're the bookends in between. Wow. If you want to know what's going on in biology, you got to go to those four (laughs) universities, those four campuses. It's all there. Very, very exciting. Love it. Wait. So question. Do you, your district spans the 80s. So is the California Zephyr Amtrak line in your district? Absolutely. Have you written it? A long while ago, uh, given the meetings that I have, it's sometimes difficult to get off the train and find somebody who'll take me 10 miles to the meetings. But it is the Capitol Corridor is really an extremely important and very highly participation. People literally commuting from Roseville all the way into the Bay Area. Uh, And more and more is going to come. And this part of my work is to use the extraordinary legislation that was passed 
the infrastructure bills specifically and build out that rail line, making it a little faster to try to separate the trade traffic that's already there and sometimes causes significant delays. We're going to build in Hercules a, a multimodal station, and that will be Wait, for- you guys have a place named Hercules? Yeah. Right? Yep. Between that and Yolo County- this is like the best state of like all time. <laughs> the names are incredible. We do have some fun names in uh, Weed, California. Really something. We're, we're looking at uh, a, a a new station for Amtrak connected with a, a ferry system that would take you all the way to San Francisco or if you want okay, to get off that. the way. Martinez, it is really, really exciting. The really good news is we have the money to do it. Yeah. And the communities are all excited about it. The Interstate 80 obviously is a traffic jam from one end to the other. So we want to get people off it. We want to get the buses. We want to get the Amtrak and the BART, of course, improvements along the way for that. But this oh is gosh. the era of opportunity. Yeah, I love that. And the Amtrak, some type of connection into the city because I live in San Francisco. I go to Tahoe all the time. And one weekend, it's like my infamous story. I got stuck in Tahoe. My ride like ditched me basically. <laughs> and I didn't know how to get home. And then I someone suggested the Amtrak. And I was like, okay. And I get on it and it was truly the best experience of my life. <laughs> like It was so beautiful. The Amtrak was just such a treat. And I highly suggest it to everyone now. I'm like, take the Amtrak one time to Tahoe. It'll be the best time. And it does drop you off like right on the other side of the Bay Bridge. But if it goes all the way into the city, that would just be so exciting. Well, I think we're not going to get it to the city, but we're going to look at Oakland's looking at improving the station there in at the port of Oakland. It's very, very exciting. And my wife loves the train. Her grandfather was a conductor on the trains in the early half of the 1900s. And so she fell in love with the train. If we're going to Tahoe, she'll say, Drop me in Sacramento and I'll meet you in uh, That's Tahoe. me. That's so, me too. It's really, it's really neat, particularly in the wintertime with the snow. Yes. It is awesome. So beautiful. Oh. Well, we're also curious too. You mentioned a few roles in government, state legislature, insurance commissioner. Can you just tell us quickly, like, which one's your favorite? Run us through a few of the roles you've been in in government. Well, I, I, there was a period of time, it was called the Vietnam War, and it was Kennedy, it was Nixon in the 60s. And then Patty and I left Berkeley and spent two years in the Peace Corps. We came back to the Vietnam War, and uh, we were very, very active in the anti-war, and uh, obviously with Nixon and all that was going on. When that was 73, 74, Patty and I just made a decision that we were going to involve ourselves in public policy. So at a very tender age, I ran for the assembly and much to the surprise of the political consultants, I won, mostly because of Patty. She was a terrific campaign manager. It was the very first one either of us had done. Was in the assembly two years and then went over to the Senate and served there until 1990. I just loved the Senate. I loved the issues. I was chairman of the Health and Welfare Committee and ran the budget and the appropriations. And we really did some very, very good work on all of those issues at that time. In 1990, there was an initiative, Prop 103, that established the insurance commissioner as an elected. And I'm going, I'm going to do that because that's health care insurance. And ran and lo and behold, won and became the first elected statewide insurance commissioner. And we spent four years working on health insurance and implementing Proposition 103, really setting in place some really important procedures that are still in effect today. And created a, a universal single-payer health insurance program, sold it to Bill and Hillary Clinton. He ran for president on that program that we developed in California, a single-payer universal health care 
program. Unfortunately, it didn't happen when he became president, but that is still one of the basic models for a universal health care system. I did that and then went back to Washington. And so I became the deputy secretary of the Department of Interior. Just loved it. Absolutely loved the Department of Interior. We're talking about national parks, all of the open space, all of the issues of endangered species and the like. Did that until 90, came back to California in 92, ran for insurance commissioner again. My successors and turned out my predecessors went back to the old days. They saw their job, Quackenbush, as taking care of the insurance companies. Mm. And so they managed to really screw up the consumer protection agency that I built. So I said, okay, I'm going to go back and rebuild it. And we did. Patty would wake up. We'd wake up in the morning and have coffee. She said, it's eight o'clock. You haven't been sued by insurance companies yet. Must be a slow day. I said, don't worry. By nine o'clock, they'll sue me. Mm-hmm. And they probably the did. But we had a good then I said, well, I think I'll look at lieutenant governor and became lieutenant governor. In 2009, a slot opened up with the retirement of, of, a, of a congresswoman and Patty and I said, let's go back to Washington. In the early days of the Obama administration, a lot of hope and a lot of promise. And then obviously we're in the great collapse of the 2008-9. And that was a very, very challenging period. It turns out that I was the necessary 218th vote to pass the legislation to the American Rescue Plan and Obamacare. It was that tight. And so I went back. My very first vote was on Obamacare and the cast it and it passed the House at that point, providing the 218th vote. So it's an exciting period. And I love Congress. I love the issues, international issues. I I have no idea why this, this Peace Corps volunteer that fought so hard to end the Vietnam War wound up on the Armed Services Committee, but I inherited that. Full circle. <laughs> my predecessor and has spent 13 years now questioning every step along the way, the extraordinary expense and really the necessity of the military and have taken on, I really don't like nuclear weapons. In the 1980s, I was part of organizations, national and international organizations dealing with nuclear weapons. Uh, we were hopeful. We were really, really hopeful with the collapse of the Soviet Union that we might be able to make progress on that. And we worked long and hard on it. I've worked long and hard for the last 13 years on trying to make some sense out of what is an extraordinarily dangerous situation, not just because of the current Ukraine war, but we now have a new nuclear arms race. It involves Russia for sure, but also China. And all of it is dependent on satellite systems, which are very, very vulnerable to outages caused by natural events, as well as sabotage of one sort or another. So that's been my work. And then, of course, on the Transportation Infrastructure Committee, which we talked about a few minutes ago. Well, to bring it back to to weapons, yeah, which one? Well, let's, before we get into weapons a little bit further here, because we got a lot to cover on that front, which is the FAVE, because they, I feel like all of those roles have something unique to them, something that's a little, you know, has a certain je ne sais quoi. The best one is tomorrow morning. There you go. The best of these is tomorrow morning. It's always been that way. I I just love the movie Annie or the play Annie and the sun will come up tomorrow and it always does. And that's a new opportunity, a new opportunity to go at whatever the issues are of that particular period of time. And so uh, they come up and we we go after them and make some progress. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Speaking of all of that and kind of the problems of today, obviously gun violence is one of the largest ones that we're facing. And we want to get into our I Have a Stupid Question segment and just kind of dive into some definitions to start. 
So to kick it off, really, can you explain what is an assault weapon? It turned, the, an assault weapon definition is extraordinarily important in the effort to ban assault weapons. And so it is a, a long gun or a pistol that can shoot multiple times in very, very rapid succession, usually by compressing the trigger multiple times. An automatic is one where you press the trigger and it just continues to shoot. So many of these assault weapons can be easily modified when you hold the trigger down and it just keeps shooting. So the definition becomes very important. Also, the amount of cartridges that can be in the gun, and this has to do with the magazine. And so California, over the years, we wrestled very hard with this back in the 1988-89, so that we would include modified weapons or new weapons And I think we were successful, but as the years have gone on, new weapons have been developed and new definitions have been put in place. Uh, And California has been at the lead of this all along over these many years, constantly updating uh, the definition of an assault weapon. And that has to continue on because the gun manufacturers are are look at the definition and say, well, if I tweak it here, it won't apply and I can sell it. And so the legislature has been very good together with governors over the period of time. And I want to commend Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was very strong on this issue also, as were the predecessors that signed the first bill. Mm -hmm. But through the years, we've been able to develop a, a very good coalition in California that today has the strongest weapon control legislation in the nation. Yeah. Well, I think one of the questions that comes to mind with all of this is what were assault weapons designed for originally? Like, what is the actual point of them? Well, an assault weapon, by its name, assault, it is used by the military to to assault a position. Usually, maybe it's another foxhole or a trench or a machine gun nest, but it is designed specifically for a foot soldier to assault a, an enemy position. That's what it is. The uh, current AR-15 and related models date back to the Vietnam War, where, the, where, the, where that particular weapon was designed for the American military to assault the enemy positions in Vietnam. And so it's, the, the weapon's been improved over time. It, it's lighter, it's more deadly, basically uses the same caliber as it was in the, in the Vietnam War period. It is a very dangerous weapon, one in which it can really destroy a human life with a just a huge assault on the human body. Yeah. But that weapon also can take out defensive positions because it, it has the capability of removing some of the defensive positions around an enemy site. Yeah. Then how do they kind of make it onto like the regular kind of consumer marketplace? Like how, when did that transition even happen, honestly? Well, it, it began in the, in the 90s, not in California because of the law that restricted it, but with the passage of the federal law in the mid 90s through the 2000, mid 2000s, that 10 year period, the assault weapon wasn't really available in the United States. It became a a weapon of choice by advertising, by the manufacturers, by the NRA's uh, policy and position that the only way to protect yourself is to have a a gun. 
And the best gun to have is a, an assault weapon. Totally fallacious, alive from the beginning to the end. But nonetheless, that was what we heard in the 2000 with the expiration of the national prohibition on assault weapons. It just went wild. And it's by advertising and by, I don't know, macho men and I don't know what word I use for women who think that carrying an assault weapon somehow makes them stronger and safer. Right. I guess that works until you run into somebody that has another assault weapon. Yeah. And he has or, faster than you do. And, and that actually happened uh, yeah. recently. I always right. say too, I'm like the whole argument of like really the Second Amendment having, you know, weapons to protect yourself against the government. If you want to overthrow the government, I'm like the government's got you beat in the weapon the weaponry department. So not sure, not sure what the argument is. But there. You've you you've raised, you've opened extremely important issue. This dates back really throughout the history of the United States. There have been organizations that waxed and waned over time who believe that the government is bad and needs to be attacked. And this is not new. But what is new is the extraordinary number of these government organizations that exist in the United States today. And they believe that it's their role to take out the government. And uh, we've seen that. Some of it is white nationalists. In fact, a lot of it is neo-Nazi organizations of various kind. And we need to be aware that there are some organizations on the left, not nearly as many, in fact, very few by comparison. But nonetheless, these are uh, anarchist organizations. Uh, they believe that it's their place to somehow remove the American government. And they're dangerous. They're yeah. very, very dangerous. Totally. And so obviously are these weapons and one of the things that stopped some of the violence from them for so long was this ban. And I'm curious what the original federal ban included. Like, is it just a ban of the weapons for sale? Was it, you know, what was included in that ban and was it effective? It was basically a ban that you could not sell these weapons in the United States. I'm not sure about the possession piece of it. It may very well be that that was not outlawed, but the sale certainly was. Unfortunately, they did not include liability for the gun manufacturers. And so we have had the gun manufacturers for pistols, assault pistols and assault weapons, shotguns, long rifles, hunting guns. None of those manufacturers are liable for any harm that may come from their gun. Even, for example, if it were to explode when somebody was using it, you cannot sue the manufacturers. And we really need to reinstitute the assault weapons ban and also the ban on the magazine capacity, the number of bullets that you could put in a magazine for the existing. California has done this, but the, the overriding removal of liability uh, needs to be addressed. If people could sue the manufacturers of, this, of these weapons, there would be a sea change in the availability of the weapons. Totally. Well, because it is so wild. It's like if a car explodes, it has engine issues, people can sue the car manufacturers. And it's so weird to see that the gun manufacturers seem to just slip on by and can't be held liable for their own products. And I think you make such a good point of like, even if the gun exploded, you're a hard gun owner, you love your guns, whatever, and you're taking it to the range and it misfires on yourself in some regard, you still can't sue for the product being faulty. So I'm curious from your perspective over the years, what is the reason for that? I mean, the NRA is the one that gets 
thrown around all the time, but I know there's other organizations, but it, are there others that we should be aware of? But also with that, like why, why can't we overpower the NRA? It just seems like, how is it this one organization that is constantly blocking everything? Well, the, the NRA certainly has been the principal actor in blocking all rational gun legislation, gun safety legislation is the way we currently use it or say it. And they've been at this since, well, way, way back. The NRA used to be simply about gun safety. Back when I was a kid, there was an NRA. And, you know, I grew up on a ranch and hunting and guns were part of, th- part of our life. And we had to go through an NRA hunter safety course before my dad would ever let us touch a gun. But I think in the 1990s, maybe a little earlier, it began to change and they became a lobbying organization for the gun manufacturers. And any lobbying organization for a manufacturer of paint or lipstick or guns wants to sell more lipstick, paint or guns. In this case, it was guns. And so the NRA became the principal lobbying organization for the gun manufacturers And the gun manufacturers really seriously supported the NRA with a lot, a lot of money. Also, there's a high probability that Russia supported the NRA in the 16 election. That part of the Mueller report is still classified. So we need to take this as a reality. Unfortunately, that entire idea that guns, if you have a gun, you're going to be safe. If you have a gun and you carry your uh, AR-15 slung over your shoulder, you're going to be even safer. Or in many states, now it's open carrying. And this idea that if you are able to carry a gun, you're going to be able to protect yourself. Well, that works until you have a shootout, which we are now having more and more shootouts. You know, I, I cannot imagine going into a bar with an open carrying law on the books. And people in the bar all have their six shooter strapped to their hip. And you're going, oh my God, I'm out of here. These folks are going to get took six shooters. <laughs> no way do you want to be in that bar at that time. So I, I don't know. Anyway, this is kind of the, a large part of America has come to believe that uh, the only way you can be safe in your home or uh, in a car or out uh, walking is to have an AR 16 strapped over your shoulder and some sort of a, a pistol on your hip. And it's and wild. Like genuine, like, because even if you like think about yourself in a position, like say you're in a supermarket and even you're a gun owner, you have one strapped and then someone starts shooting with an AR-15, you're not going to be able to react in time to take your gun out of the holster and turn around and shoot back. Like you're already dead. So I feel like the argument too, when it's ever that is like so moot. Well, what we saw in the most recent tragic mass shootings at the school and today in Louisville, is the police were there within three minutes. Yeah. And so, and, and they, they know how to do this. I think there's been, I'm only aware of maybe one or two cases in the last decade where somebody had a, was able to take out a shooter because they carried a pistol. But there have been, what, 130 plus mass shootings, and not one of those have been stopped by somebody carrying a pistol. I mean, even looking at Uvalde, too, and the police yeah. response there and how that wasn't able even to stop to well, stop it in time. A very, very important, extremely important fact came out of the Ivaldi. Why did the police wait for, what, 90 minutes or so? Why did they refuse to go in? And in the testimony of the police officers, they were afraid of the AR-15 that they knew this kid had mm. because they knew that their, be- their 
vests would not stop an AR-15. And so they were frightened. And that's a message for all of us. Totally. You know, if the police armed as they are with their protective vests and all that, they they know if they're up against an AR-15, they're at severe risk. And all of us, every American ought to take that as a lesson and, and realize what these weapons can do to a human body. Absolutely. Well, let's get a little bit back into some legislation. The 94 ban expired. And it's something that, you know, people have been calling for again, especially just in light of all of the tragedies we've been dealing with for the past many years, honestly. So currently there's S25, which was introduced by Feinstein. What's in this bill? Can you kind of explain, is this, you know, kind of a mirrored bill from the 94 one? Is it different? Does it, is it kind of an improvement? What does it look like? Well, the general public doesn't know that in the last session of Congress, David Cicilline and, and I and about 190 Democratic members of Congress supported a ban on assault weapons that was written to eliminate the current assault weapons and any new ones that might be developed. That passed the House twice in 2008 and 2021 and 22. So the House of Representatives, when the Democrats controlled, we passed an assault weapons ban twice. The Senate refused to take it up, refused to take it up, not even vote on it. Senator Feinstein has introduced essentially the same bill that passed the House of Representatives twice in 21 and 22. Good for her. My attitude on this is that the assault weapons bill ought to be on the floor every week, and we ought to vote yes or no, up or down. And anybody that wants to run for Congress or the Senate ought to answer this question. Are you a yes vote on an assault weapons ban? Yes or no? No ifs, don't parse it. Don't give me, well, it has to be written. No, no. Are you yes or no? And obviously Feinstein and Senator Padilla are yes. Absolutely, which they should be and are very biased opinions over here. But that is genuinely wild and incredibly frustrating that we literally passed it how many times on the House side and the Senate couldn't even take it up for a vote. And I know there's been calls for Schumer's to bring it to a vote about a million and 10 times. And I'm curious from your perspective, what that block is. Is he just, he knows he doesn't have the votes, but like also from our end, who cares? Then have people on the record. You know, I just don't really understand what the holdup is. I I think it's about the political future of uh, members of Congress and the Senate. We are actually looking at, even though the Republicans control the House, There is a way to bring a bill to the floor without Republican support. And we may do that. We're trying to figure out how that can be done. On the Senate side, I don't know what Schumer is thinking. I can think of a lot of reasons that, well, it may be difficult in one of the red states. We may not be able to win a campaign. Do we want this to be the, uh, the issue? And my attitude is, how many times do people have to be shot with an assault weapon and how many people have to die? God, there was a 1960 song. How many people have to die before? Mm-hmm. Peter, Paul, and Mary. And, and that's a relevant question today. And so I say, you know, vote it up and down. If you're not yeah. willing to vote against an assault weapon ban, then you shouldn't be in Congress. You shouldn't be in the Senate. Yeah. I don't care if it's the majority or the minority. This issue is just too damn important now. Too many people are dying every day. Yes or no? 
if you support an assault weapon ban, then good for you, and we ought to all come out and support you. And if you're not willing to vote for assault weapons ban, then you're on your own. Good luck. Yeah. No, it's it's so crazy, too, even on the Democratic side, that it's just like in the span of three weeks, we've had two pretty massive tragedies already. How is that not just like your first instinct to make this a priority and take action on it? But I'm also curious, too, what what are some of the arguments you've heard from your colleagues on the other side? Like, have you had conversations with people about this? And what are you hearing? What are the conversations being had? And kind of what are the arguments on the other side, if there's any? <laughs> well, there are arguments. <laughs> They're not worth anything. Well, the argument says uh, if everybody has an assault weapons, we'll all be safe because we can we can shoot it out. You know, gunfight. Do you, okay. Sorry. Oh. Do you like call them out and just like ever about, you know, the money, the NRA money, anything like that? I'm like curious if that's ever a part of the conversation internally. Like, do you guys mm-hmm. do you guys go there? Yes. Yes, we can. And yes, we do. And, and we do it with some of our own colleagues. Not every Democrat voted for those the assault weapons ban. They're afraid they're going to back, go back home and they're going to be, uh, you know, but some, recognize some of these places are very difficult. Just talk about Texas. There's still a handful of Democrats in Texas, and these, this issue is very, very difficult for representatives in Texas. So we'll see what happens here. In the last Senate election in Texas, our Democratic colleague ran on it, ran on an assault weapons ban, got about 45% of the vote, I think. So that was that was a surprise that he yeah. said, I'm going to vote for assault weapons ban. And of course, he lost. But I don't think it was just because of that issue. Yeah. Right. It's like everything has nuance. Everything is complication. I think, too, like from our perspective as voters, constituents, as young people that are dying at the hands of this, like we want to see at least someone try. You know, it's like at least you know if you lose, okay, get another job. You know, that's what people tell us. So when we see, you know, elected officials not even trying and just ignoring it, even if it means them losing their job, it's like, okay, then so be it. Then run another campaign at another point is sort of the attitude our people have. Well, that's my attitude about it is, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to ask my democratic colleagues and, and my democratic candidates are, will you vote for assault weapon ban? Yes or no. And if they say they give me the, you know, the runaround and say, well, good luck. I'm not, I can't support you. I just come to that and swear I am. And I, I hope there are others that, that feel the same way. I hope, well, let's take a look at three young Members of their assembly, you know, got two of them got thrown out because they were uh, fighting the assault weapons ban. Good for them. They're going to get back in, and mm-hmm. that's good for the community and it's good for all of us. And you mentioned young people. You know, I was young when I put together the assault weapons ban, but you got to do it. You just you have to do it. Yeah. And I'm not yeah. so young now, but I've been all in on this since what 1988. Yeah, and I'm yeah. so curious. One of the conversations that happens in my family a lot is. My parents being like, I don't remember this from my day. Like, when did it get so bad? Like, this is it. Like how I grew up, like where, where did the change point happen? And that's something I can't really answer for them. And they don't really know either. And I don't think it's the only, I'm the only family that has that conversation. I'm curious from your end, if there was any moment for you where it felt like, okay, this is the change point in how guns are looked at in this country or how they're sold or advertised or how we even just got to this problem where Mass shootings are literally a daily occurrence. Maddie and I were texting this morning, like, good morning, another mass shooting. Like, that's the America we live in. And so I'm just really curious from your end, you know, was there a point where you noticed a big shift 
1988. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned would, like when the assault that weapons came on the market was around the 90s. Like, I feel like that's when we started to see the first instances of, you know, gun well, violence like that. 1988, I represented Stockton, California in a schoolyard shooting with a AK-47, the Russian assault rifle. I was there the day after the shooting. Blood was on the ground in the, in the schoolyard. And then we went to the hospital with the survivors. We saw the wounds. And I just said, I got to do something. And so I introduced the legislation within the next week and been there ever since. That was my moment. That was Patty's moment. That was, and we were successful. When did it change? Feinstein, 1992, introduced the legislation, became law in 1994, federal ban on assault weapons, 10 years. So that would be 2004. By that time, the NRA was working on creating a, a policy in America that guns are good. The more you have, the safer you will be. And by the time that assault weapons ban, it just opened Pandora's box. And here we are today. Yeah. And so, you know, we're living with this. As you say, every morning you wake up 130. How many days have passed since January 1st? What we're are not we? math girls. Yeah. Yeah. We don't. <laughs> but no, it's true. It's like you said, it's or, not even a third of the way through the year. I don't believe. More, more mass shootings than the number of days this year. Yeah. Like way more, which is really scary. We're something we always talk about too. Like we're always pushing to, for people to pay attention to state government and, you know, push for a change there. But this issue around gun violence and gun reform is something that we're like, that I think federally is like really the only option to really stop this fully because like looking at even California that has pretty amazing gun laws, like we still have are instances of gun violence and mass shootings because oftentimes there's guns that are brought from neighboring states that have poor gun laws. So can you kind of explain too, like why looking at this from a federal lens is so important and what kind of solutions we can look look to? Well, we have we have to have federal law here. There's no other way to deal with this. There are two problems. One is the million or more assault weapons that are already out in the public. And secondly, to prevent additional assault weapons uh, going into the hands of people around this nation. And so the legislation to ban assault weapons and to restrict the magazine sizes are really important. And also important is the ability to sue a gun manufacturer. Those would be the priorities that I would want to put in place. They, that can all be coupled with a gun buyback, which is common. It's common in red states, blue states, and every state and states in between. So that would be another useful thing to be to do. And that could be done by putting a, a significant tax on, on the sale of all guns that are not banned and ammunition. And you use that money to buy back weapons. The different ways we can go about this, uh, it's, it's going to be difficult. But I don't see any. We simply have to do it. Yeah. Too many people are dying. It is an epidemic of profound importance and is, is not only killing people, but it is radically changing our society, the way we interact with each other. And that, that'll have a very long-term and very a serious effect going forward. Yeah. I think the trauma is like so far-reaching and has such a ripple effect. It spreads so wide. But curious, like for the solution, this assault weapons ban that's kind of on the table right now, does it have a pathway? What does that look like? What are some solutions we can be hopeful for? 
I think that we're in a very difficult situation. Thankfully, the president is every week renewing his call for assault weapons ban, and that provides national leadership, makes the issue at the top of the agenda, his agenda, and, and therefore on Congress's agenda. Uh, there may be some leverage points that will occur. We need to see what happens with uh, Senator Feinstein and Senator Padilla's bill. That would be a very, very important moment. We will try in the House to force a vote on assault weapons on the floor of the House. That's a difficult process, but we need to do that. We need to keep this issue right at the top of the American agenda. And that's our task in Congress. The, the, the horrible news is every morning, there's a probability that America will wake up to another mass shooting and increasingly with an assault weapon being the, the way in which these people have been killed. So we'll see. Uh, and as I said before, if I, if I were a, a mega donor and I'm a minor donor to my Democratic colleagues and want to be members of Congress, the question I'm going to ask is, are you a yes or no vote on assault weapon? And if it's a no, they're not going to get any help from me. I'm just that's where I am. And I would hope that the mega donors out there feel the same way and, and you know, make this an issue. Similarly with, with Republicans, there are Republican mega donors that ought to ask the same question. And uh, if a Republican says no, then you know, maybe their opponent will say yes. Maybe it's a Democrat, maybe it's a Republican. And support people that are committed to voting for assault weapon ban and liability and magazine capacity. So frustrating that it has to be that way, right? That like you have to follow the money and ask the donors to make the moves when I feel like constituents are calling for it, but it's just the way it functions. But it is honestly a great route that makes sense with how our government works is like you have to kind of go that way and and follow the money because at the end of the day, that's where a lot of the influence comes. So it's a great point. Great point. Agreed. Well, the, the good news for, for us in California is that over the years, beginning in 1990, we have had an assault weapons ban. And every year, every two years, it's updated to account for modifications in the weapons. And gun safety laws are the best in the nation in California. And so for uh, the governors that supported it down through the years, beginning in the 1990s to this day, Governor Newsom's been very strong on this issue, and I'm thankful for that. Governor Brown before him, Schwarzenegger before that. I'm not sure about Pete Wilson. Wasn't much to do during that period because we did have an assault weapons ban in California. But those governors, uh, to their credit, and to the legislature over the years, those that have come and gone, those that have won or lost over the years, have put forth the best gun safety legislation in the nation. Red flag laws, on and on. And so uh, we can be thankful for the uh, leadership, political leadership down through the years. And I'd include myself in that way back when, that we've all played a role here. And mm -hmm. in many ways, make California safer. Now, if we can deal with the neighboring states, if we can deal with the national, then we'll all be safer. Totally. Well, fingers crossed. Thank you for giving us this run through the history, where we're at now, and hopefully some you know spaces and moves for us to go in terms of this incredibly important issue. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor. Thank you. Have a great afternoon and thank you. Keep the message. Keep the faith. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. Hey. 
Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.